Welcome to our first ever bonus episode on Space to Build. I have partnered up with Dr. Andrew McCoy, Director of the Virginia Center for Housing Research, Professor in the Department of Building Construction, and Associate Director of the Myers Lawson School of Construction at Virginia Tech. He has over 20 years of experience in the AEC industry. Uh, Dr. McCoy, I actually have a surprise for you. We have sprinkled in six episodes throughout this season. We team up with research experts to dive into topics such as renewable energy, affordable housing, and even 3D concrete printing, which I'm so excited to share with you. In today's episode, we speak to Dr. Philip Adji about operating as product managers versus project managers, high-performance housing and efficient technologies, and the impact of the built environment on our well-being. Are you ready? Catherine, did you know that there was a guy in 1834 that was called the Ice King? No, who's that? Name was Frederick Tudor, and he lived in Boston, Massachusetts, and he became the first person to really ship and sell ice around the world. How did he do that? Well, he dreamed up this idea of shipping ice to the Caribbean where it was scarce, and he was successful at first at getting something like 80 tons from Boston to Martinique. But the problem was once he got it there, no one knew what to do with it. So, you know, they could not yet fathom how ice would preserve cargo on ships back to the north or extend their trade routes or extend the life of produce, for example. Now, he also had a storage problem. So, you know, what ended up happening was he had nowhere to preserve the ice for longer periods of time once it got to the Caribbean. So he figured out ships that were carrying goods to Boston also had very little to bring back to the Caribbean in their hulls. So he used kind of these empty ships to get a way of low-cost transportation. Sounds efficient. So then how did he keep everything cool? Oh. Well, New England had a lot of wood that it was harvesting, and they had sawdust, and sawdust is either worthless or inexpensive. And Tudor figured out that ice layered with sawdust in between blocks could last twice as long and store very well. So essentially, it created a current of air around the ice that kept the blocks colder. It was the beginning of refrigeration systems. Very cool. So tell me more, like what did he do on the trip back? Well, he started packing ships, hulls with ice and sawdust and developing strategic trading locations and storage, right? And so if you take that equation, free ice plus cheap transportation, plus free sawdust, plus refrigeration, plus storage, he had a thriving business. Before he died, he was delivering ice to vast parts of the globe, and he was worth about $200 million in today's dollars. Man, I wish I was back in the 1800s with some ice and some sawdust and making that kind of money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like a brilliant idea. And I guess back then they had limited means. And the cool thing about this, though, is this kind of begins people thinking about how can I work with ice in different ways? And it brings us to modern day cooling systems and buildings. And we're going to hear from a colleague that works with building performance and the interface of the different systems that we design for these buildings with people. So it's one thing to bring cooling into a building. It's another thing to make sure that the system works well and that the people who are either trying to interface with the controls of the system or the people who are trying to maintain the system know what they're doing. I just thought it was interesting to kind of point out that all of this 
came from somebody called the Ice King back in 1834. I love it. And I love that we get to talk about this with one of your colleagues. Um, what's his name? His name is Dr. Philip Agee, and he works in the Center for Housing Research at Virginia Tech, and he's also faculty in the Myers Lawson School of Construction at Virginia Tech. Very cool. I'm really excited because I'm, I'm sensing there's going to be a little bit of that human element, a little bit of psychology, all the things I got made fun of for being a building construction <laughs> student who also was getting a psychology degree on the side. <laughs> Clearly, you knew what you were doing. <laughs> I am so excited to bring on our co-host, Andrew McCoy and Philip Ag. I'll let Andrew actually start off our conversation. Thank you, Catherine, for inviting me to be part of the podcast. And Philip, thank you for joining us. This is exciting. I really wanted to uh, invite you to be on the podcast so we could talk about your expertise and all the awesome work that you're doing right now that I know about, work that you've done in the past. And then we wanted to talk to you a little bit about work in the future. Do you mind just telling us a little bit about your background and kind of how you got to the current work that you're doing? And then I know we're going to ask you about what you're doing right now. Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks, Catherine. Andrew, for having me. I'm Philip Agee. I'm an assistant professor and the Department of Building Construction at Myers Lawson School of Construction and Assistant Director of the Virginia Center for Housing Research at Virginia Tech. We got two kids, married, and uh, I think, you know, I was a terrible student pretty much my whole life, but I love to learn and always have loved to learn. So I didn't think I wanted to be a professor ever. And I just wanted to like get an undergraduate degree and go out and make money. And then I've really found a nice home at Virginia Tech and feel very fortunate to be there. Maybe one way to say it is a reluctant student. When we find applications of what we enjoy, then we become a student, we become a researcher, and we're willing to jump in and, and applying that to our lives becomes a lot easier. And that brings me to a question around how you got here. I know from our conversations in the past, you, you studied undergraduate at a place where you had a little bit more humanities background, but now... A lot of the work that you're doing is in building science and performance. So can you just bridge the gap a little bit there and, and kind of how you got interested early on? So it's a good question. So, I mean, I used to build houses. I got into construction when I was like 16, but you know, I flashed windows that leak water and it's amazing. We've been building buildings for hundreds, if not thousands of years. How can it be that like we still build buildings that leak water, right? And so that's the type of question that would keep me awake at night. We have a tendency to focus on technologies in our industry because it's easy to market technologies and people can sell technologies and we can reward people when they sell technologies, a lot of them, right? But um, I think it, it, it made me understand that um, sometimes it's the application of the technology or even just the knowledge, right, that either is missing or it, when it goes really well is, is what came together correctly. So. Yeah, I studied biology in undergrad again, because I just wanted to be outside. Most of my colleagues were like pre-med. I mean, I can even remember some of them towards our senior year, like getting white jackets with their names embroidered on it. And I was just like, that's the opposite of me, right? I just want to walk around in the woods. Um, but, you know, I always was interested in kind of science. And then I continue to work in the construction field just because that's where you could make the most money when you were a teenager. But at the same time, I started seeing things that I would do. Um, you know, again, I come back to the window example where I had flashed windows that leak water and it wasn't because I was trying to do it incorrectly. It's just because of things were out of sequence or there was no quality control process on it to make sure I did it correctly. And so 
yeah, kind of fast forward through undergrad and I took a job with a nonprofit that was kind of in a startup phase at the time, but they did they effectively did a lot of integrated design training and building science and, you know, almost kind of similar to commercial construction that we would consider to be like commissioning or contract administration on that, you know, Hey, we have a set of drawings. How do we integrate the different disciplines? How can we make improvements to the building? Uh, how can we simulate the performance of the building? And then during construction, it's not just the design, it's actually, we need to have pre-construction meetings with subcontractors to make sure that they actually understand what the, the basis of design is or the intent of the design. And better yet, we shouldn't have them involved in design because they actually know more about it than most of the designers do. Um, and then through the construction process, being there as an entity that would follow to ensure that we had certain performance goals or performance criteria we wanted to achieve, that we were documenting that and making sure that we actually, you know, were on track to make those goals. Do you mind walking us into where you've taken that building performance background now? So um, in the building performance or building science world, there are a couple types of views of the world. One of them is kind of the laboratory and what I call handbook engineers. I'm not one of those. Handbook engineers think that, you know, they look at an engineering handbook and they say their words like thou shall and almost treat it like a religion. And they're not able to grasp the, the fact that something, even though they followed a prescriptive table in an engineering handbook, uh, that in the field, it might not actually be the outcome or result that the handbook says, right? Just to set the stage a little bit, I'm not a handbook engineer. I'm an in the field engineer. Like I'm a Cool. Your handbook prescriptive table says that, but like I'm sitting here looking at it, it doesn't work. So a lot of the way that I've learned and it's by doing and by seeing failures and, and increasingly I spend more time trying to learn and understand about failures because yeah, you don't learn much when stuff goes right. And so a lot of the work that we do in working with the housing center is of course applied to housing. So it's easily relatable. So I just, I take a very applied approach to it. I mean, I understand the physics and all the engineering behind it, but I don't need to lead with that. I can lead with, hey, guess what? Your window is leaking water and um, it shouldn't leak water. Why does it leak water? And kind of go from it from that perspective. I know the basics of this and I know kind of how you've been able to take it and move it forward. And I was going to ask a little bit about that, but Catherine, I don't want to cut you off from any comments you had too. So I was just going to say, this is really refreshing to hear because in the field, so often you hear things like, well, the handbook says this, and here, let me pull it up for you and send you a picture of what it looks like. And we're like, that's cool. And we understand that theory, but standing here on the job site is a whole different situation. So we had to make the modifications and we'd go through the whole process of explaining it. And then we're hit with, now you still can't do that. So it's yeah. just refreshing to hear somebody in your role, specifically in academia, say the opposite of what I was anticipating. Well, I mean, part of it is the way that we silo risk in our industry. And maybe because I came at this from a very applied standpoint and, and had no formal training in construction, it took me going through Virginia Tech's construction program to really kind of formalize my knowledge and some of the construction management processes. But, you know, most design engineers never visit a construction site. We just read a set of construction drawings, right? It's considerably easier to sue a contractor than, you know, designers. They don't own much. They take risk, but they're very good at pushing risk to general contractors. I have a colleague in the high performance building space and they're like me. They kind of came from the field and it's, they do design build of mechanical systems, right? They own the entire risk and they pick the clients they work with. They work with people that pay them 50% of their fee up front because they're so good. That's the way it is. Let everybody else fight over the crappy projects and the crappy clients. All right. So I want to explore a little bit more this idea of 
and I know this is where some of your work has gone, Philip, this idea of we have technology, we have design, we have engineering, we are able to hopefully create these designs in a way that when executed properly will function and work well, right? Locally here at the county administration offices, when you walk into the bathroom, there's a toilet and above the toilet is a little motion sensor and then a big sign on it that says, this motion sensor no longer works. You have to make sure that you use the manual toilet flush if you're going to use this toilet, right? It's that idea, this technology that makes our life easier. It's going to be more convenient. It's going to work really well. And then, by the way, it stops working and nobody knows what to do. Or in your case, you know, with building performance, we have a really interesting and probably progressive design on how a building should work. But when it comes to the interface of human beings and that design or the technology, things fall apart a little bit. Can you talk a little bit more about your work and what you've been doing to kind of make sure that it's not just about trying to design it so that it's going to work optimally, but it's also introducing humans into that mix and making sure that they can understand what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to do it, and then, you know, down the road, fix it. Yeah. So I think that this is a good question. It's a good opportunity to kind of contrast the construction industry to other industries, right? So let me just frame it a little bit. In construction, we view our product as a project which is probably fundamentally wrong. And we're not project managers, we're product managers, right? And we're, we're product engineers, but we all have project manager titles, project engineer titles. When you look at what you design, build and operate as a product versus a project, it fundamentally changes the way that you view things. Okay, and in the construction as a product mindset, there are two primary users of a product. Toilet, let's use your toilet example, right? Because everybody in industrialized society uses that product, hopefully multiple times a day. If you're not, you need to drink more water. Okay. There are two primary users of that product, the occupant of the building and the facility manager, right? The person that has to maintain that system. I mean, Catherine, on your projects, how often is a maintenance manager, a person that's going to actually operate the building involved in the design of the product? Never. Never, right? We don't have a product mentality. Okay. So if you were designing it as a product, you would bring in the people, the users, the, the whole reason why you're developing the product in the first place. And you would understand their needs, their frustrations, uh, their day-to-day -day job, the context of who they are as a user of that product. And you would study their interactions. You'd also have to focus on the technology, right? Well, guess what? The more engineered any system is, the more it's going to break. You know, OSB is a worse product than plywood because it is more engineered, right? We, we have empirical data on that type of stuff. So I guess to summarize my point is, you got to look at things through the lens as it being a product and not a project. And you have to be willing to have a long-term view. Most construction projects turn out to be crime scenes where everybody runs away from them, right? And then the lawyers come in and do the cleanup, okay? And so, of course, the buildings are going to be terrible. The projects are going to suck because we don't manage them and design them like a product. Uh, if we brought that municipality building manager in, or I want somebody that has tools in their, in their vehicle, I want them to be at the center of the design process. And I want to understand what their most frustrating days are because they have so much knowledge and institutional knowledge about the design of that toilet and how it should work that we can't afford to not tap into that knowledge, right? And ignore that knowledge because it's going to get more expensive and harder to do. 
Well, where is this going to go, Philip? Yeah, I don't know. So I'm an optimist by nature, but I'm not overly optimistic about where it goes in terms of our industry. And, and maybe that's just as I get older, I get more jaded about certain things. I can't take credit for this saying, but the gap between stupid and hurt is getting smaller. Okay. So the things that we do on projects that we used to be able to get away with in crappy buildings, we're not getting away with because in our response to climate change, we're building buildings like Yeti cups and coolers. Okay. So now that gap, those things that we flash in that window incorrectly on a crappy building, oh, who cares? The wall is going to get wet and it's not that well insulated and it probably won't cause a problem. But if, if that window that I installed incorrectly on a Yeti cup goes wrong, now you've got significantly less drying potential and now the building's going to have much more problems, right? I'm not an optimist right now about where it goes. I think that there are certain pieces of the built environment that are going to get better. Like I think ventilation and indoor air quality is probably going to get better just because of like the shock to the system that COVID was. Not to spin around on you on the question, but how many hours of a year do you spend indoors? Right. They're 8,760 hours in the year. The average American spends about 87% of their year in the built environment, right? 7,600 hours out of those 8,760 hours. So your interactions in a building matter. They have outcomes that relate to your well being, um, how productive you are at work, how well you sleep at night, how many times you go to the doctor. And at the same time, we as educators, we have an opportunity to help people understand the impact that buildings have on people's lives and environment and all of those things. But we're not training people that way. You know, like you're coming through a construction management program, you're learning. We only have so little time to try to teach you the fundamentals of project management, quality control, cost control, schedule control, kind of the pillars, right? Where's it going though? Yeah, I don't know. I think there are going to be some interactions to get better, right? Tell us a little bit about the research and how you're taking this forward based on the work that you're doing. Yeah, I think one of the areas that I'm really interested in is the interface. In order to understand how the buildings actually perform, we've taken a lot of it out of the building shell and moved it to the way that people interact with the different parts of the building, whether it's the thermostat, their lighting controls, the toilet, right? So a lot of the work that I'm interested in is kind of stealing knowledge that and methods that we've learned in aerospace and other high-risk systems, like putting people on the moon's pretty high risk. You have to understand the way that people interact with dashes and um, controls, and then trying to apply that knowledge to building interfaces, specifically like building thermostat controls, lighting controls, energy management systems. Because I can tell you that you have a lot of legacy companies in the space, right? Some of those companies have been around for 50 years. And guess what? They're not that innovative and they're really good on the mechanical part of it, but they're really terrible on the interaction part of it. So we're looking at the way these controls either understand people and human factors and how to design these interfaces for good interaction. And what I mean by good interaction is like a reduced cognitive burden. Like I don't have to actually think about it. Like when you go through a door somewhere, you don't think a lot about it unless it's like a really tricky door handle, right? So like we should be designing interfaces in buildings to make people's lives easier and reduce cognitive burden. That's why, like back to your, the toilet analogy, because it's a good one. That's why dual flush toilets are, are one of the worst interface designs of any type of plumbing system. You know, a standard flush toilet that is low flush is much better to use and easier on the person using it than just giving them two buttons makes the interaction twice as hard, right? And that's an interaction that we have every, I mean, we all agree that saving water is important, right? Definitely agree with that. But, you know, it's 
leading with the technology instead of thinking about the way the person interacts with the technology that led people to say, oh, let's put two buttons on a toilet. Well, gosh, there's only been one for all this time. And now you're doubling that difficulty of that interaction. And it seems subtle, but hopefully, like I say, we're all using that toilet multiple times a day. And guess what? It doesn't matter if you're four years old or you're 84 years old, you're using that toilet multiple times a day. So just subtle changes can have big impacts. Well, and the thing that's interesting to me about that example is the concept is to save water, but when you don't realize, oh, I used the wrong button, now you're using the other button, and now we're basically flushing twice, yep. right? So we're actually, in effect, through the design that was supposed to save water, we're wasting water. So your work, I mean, th this is the bigger question, is how is it going to help people? How is it going to help housing, and how is it going to help industry? Where do you see that going? Where my work can really help is... I'm a big um, advocate for keeping things simple. And because again, the more engineered something is, the more likely it is to break. I get to do a lot of work with a lot of housing providers and I've been able to use some of the methods that come out of human computer interaction or in aerospace interface design. And then, you know, have housing providers go out and actually survey and interview residents before they do a new design of a, a redesign of an existing housing development or design a new product. And that's the way that they gain knowledge about their customer and what people need. This has been a fantastic conversation. How can our listeners connect with you to learn more about high-performance housing and the work that you do? You can just type my name into Google and the only social media I really use is LinkedIn. Thank you, Philip. This has been great. Yep. Y'all have a super day. All right. Take care. Watch that Thank toilet. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here today. If you would like to chime in on the conversation, you can find us online at space2build.co. Yes, it's .co. We are also on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at space2build. When you have a moment, do you mind leaving a review for this podcast? I read your reviews at the end of each episode, and I'm constantly looking for ways to improve. Any ideas to improve your experience will be more than welcome. And remember, you belong here. There is so much space for you in our industry. 